Soprano Anne Sloven was on stage recently in a new role. Anne Frank. The first opera based on Anne Frank's diary premiered at the Indiana University Opera Theater in early March. And Anne Sloven says the production wasn't just about the tragedy of Anne Frank's life. Something that is important to me as a Jewish artist is to present not only the times when we suffered, but also the times that are really joyful and the times that we celebrate, because that's we, we celebrate a lot. We have a lot of holidays. We have a lot of um, drinking holidays. <laughs> um, so I, I, think, I think Jewish culture has the potential to be incredibly joyful. This week on a special Pledge Drive edition of Interstates, we talk with the opera's composer, the conductor, and soprano Anne Sloven about how the production came to be and what it means today. That's coming up right after this. Hey there, it's Alex. This is Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. It's Fund Drive Week. Time to reflect on what public media means to you. First, I want to let you know what we've got coming up on this week's episode. It's all about music this week. One history, one mystery, and one uh, eccentricity. It's a new album by a Bloomington musician is, is what that one is. Anyway, let's hear what it took to create an opera about Anne Frank. Here's Violet Barron with the story. Back in May of 2019, the opera singer Anne Sloven was kind of between gigs. And a friend reached out to her, basically out of the blue, to say that IU's Jacobs School of Music was looking for a singer to workshop this totally new project on the diary of Anne Frank. It would actually become the world's first main stage opera based on the diary. At the time when Anne signed on, she really wasn't expecting the project to become as big as it did. Called Anne Frank, the work premiered at IU's Musical Arts Center on March 3rd, 2023. It was kind of fortuitous because I was in between things. I hadn't come back to start my doctorate yet. I was house-sitting for a friend with her cats, and um, this opportunity kind of fell into my lap. Maestro Fagan reached out to me, the opera office reached out to me to ask if I would be a part of this. For anyone who wasn't assigned the book in high school, it started out as a diary gifted to a Jewish girl living in Amsterdam, just somewhere to record her private thoughts, her crushes, her fights with her mom. It ended up as a document of her life in hiding, as her family tried to wait out the Nazi occupation. Anne didn't survive World War II, but her diary did. For the opera's Pulitzer Prize-winning composer Shulamit Ron, the project had actually been building for even longer. I was actually approached about writing an Anne Frank opera by a gentleman whose name is uh, Dennis Hanthorne, and he had this dream of commissioning a work based on the diary of Anne Frank. And he approached me, having heard my first opera, Between Two Worlds, the Dibbuk. And um, Arthur Fagan, Maestro Fagan, conducted uh, that work. And uh, so we have that uh, really very strong, powerful connection since then. And um, Dennis Hamthorne of the Atlanta Opera came to this performance. And it was quite a while later that he suddenly called me up one evening and introduced himself and talked to me about this idea. And there were two things that I said to him at that moment. But I would want to talk to Charles Kondek, 
whom I consider my librettist, so to speak. <laughs> He's the librettist who also uh, wrote the libretto for my first opera. And I felt that um, if anyone could uh, take the diary and I don't want to say translate it because it's not translation, it's transformation into a, an opera libretto, a script, so to speak, and work with the kind of themes that I was interested in, it would be uh, Charles Kondek. And the second question was, do you have the rights? Because as a composer, I have encountered, uh, encountered numerous uh, <laughs> uh, situations where the issue of rights is a major, major concern. And indeed, it turned out to be that way. Uh, we were on a hunt for well over a decade to simply secure the rights. There was a special project. In 2011, the former director of the Atlanta Opera and I went to Basel to meet Anne Frank's first cousin. His name was Buddy Elias. Uh, he grew up with Anne as a child in Frankfurt, and when the war started, the family split up. His family moved to Switzerland and therefore survived the war, whereas Otto Frank moved his family to Amsterdam. He was, make, he was pretty much making decisions, and he had not get granted permission for a main stage opera to anybody. That's the opera's conductor, Arthur Fagan, or Maestro Fagan, as he's known to the Jacobs community. He took on the task of obtaining the rights during a day spent with the holders of the Anne Frank estate, relatives of hers, in Basel, Switzerland. My mother and father were Holocaust survivors, my grandparents as well. They were on Schindler's List. But many of uh, you know my great great grandparents and 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 great aunts, great uncles. I mean, they all perished during the Holocaust, and I feel, especially in the present time, when we have a surge in anti-Semitism, uh, that it is very important to keep the memory of the Holocaust alive. And this has been a theme throughout my entire career, wherever I have worked. I recounted my family history, that I was a Holocaust survivor, and that, you know, Shulamit Ron was a composer whose first opera I conducted in Chicago in 1997, and that we are really committed to doing an opera based on the diary. And we sort of convinced him. We had to go through a lot of hoops afterwards to get the uh, American permission to do it. Because there's an Anne Frank Foundation in, in Basel, and there's also uh, an Anne Frank's uh, Foundation here in the United States. At first, he was hesitant because he said that there was a European comp company interested in doing it, but I, I don't know what made him finally decide to give it to us, but he did. Getting permission was actually just the beginning. Well, it's a huge challenge. It's a very difficult opera for the singers as well as for the orchestra. And contemporary opera has a completely different set of challenges. Uh, as I mentioned, this is, a, I mean, for those who know music, this is a piece that has constant changing meters, constantly changing orchestration, and constantly changing tempi. So uh, there's an incredibly great amount of material to rehearse compared to doing a normal standard opera. 
It's brilliantly orchestrated, but it, it is quite difficult. And it's very transparent, so we hear everything that's going on. In a piece like this, I mean, we're talking about two different levels. One is the basic level of getting all the notes, the rhythms, uh, just the basic skeleton right. And that in itself is a huge challenge. And then we have to bring it up a step and we have to be able to communicate the artistic message. And also, you know, there's not already a consciousness of what this opera is, right? You know, if you do something like Carmen, everyone knows Carmen already. Right. Yeah. No one's been exposed yet to this. That's right. Anne Sloven, the singer, agrees that the work has its challenges. I will say for me, vocally, just from a singer standpoint, um, because the role has such a large range, meaning that we sing at the bottom of our possible vocal range and also at the top. Um, and often we do that very quickly. So you're going from low to high and high to low in a very short period of time. That's been something that I've had to navigate and figure out how to do. And and thankfully, the first time I sang this was three years ago, four years ago almost. And I've matured a lot and grown a lot. So this has really grown with me. Um, the other challenges, you know, I'm a, a singer in my 30s and Anne Frank is uh, 13 to 15 years old during the show. So finding um, that childlike quality about her without sacrificing the sort of adult voice that we all have. We're all, well, some of us are younger than our characters, but for those of us playing children or teenagers, um, there's a way to play a child on stage in an opera. It's big, loud, adult singing. It's not meant to be performed by a child, um, but you still have to exude a kind of um, very youthfulness. So that's been an interesting challenge for me, uh, getting that into my body. Part of the reason it's so challenging to learn and sing is the nature of Shulamit Ron's work. Among other things, she uses atypical tonality and directions to performers like Get Wilder or Scream. You know, each composition, you start from a blank slate. You start from point zero, and something in you feels as though you've never composed a thing in your life. And what are you going to do next? On the one hand, the composer has to keep a certain um, sense of being removed from what you're doing, removed enough to be able to uh, view it objectively to know how you're actually proceeding. I suppose in some sense it would be, would be like a surgeon who is uh, doing the surgery and cannot be involved with a, a patient, but rather involved with the work that would make it the most uh, successful for the patient. And so if there is a way to equate it, what I mean when I'm saying that sense of, of objectivity, but there's no way to be objective when you are tackling something like uh, Anne Frank. And so I found myself in many, many different moments uh, uh, moved to tears as I was composing. Um, it was a very, very meaningful, powerful, and uh, truly challenging in the deepest sense of the word, writing an opera about Anne Frank, who is such a iconic figure and whose uh, 
I, I, the most extraordinary, extraordinary thing, a diary written by a girl uh, between her 13th and 15th uh, birthdays, um, that it should become, in a way, the work that has brought the Holocaust to the uh, to 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 the knowledge of people from all over the world. Uh, you hear people of many different um, backgrounds and coming from many different countries. Uh, how they react to this uh, to this book and finding that it speaks to them in such powerful ways and. Uh, I think few people uh, uh, made that kind of an impact as far as telling the story of the Holocaust in her own particular way. Of course, she did not know that she was going toward her death no. eventually. So the the diary is written by a young girl, a vivacious, uh, strong-headed uh, 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 young girl who could sometimes be prickly, uh, many times could be funny, who had uh, conflicts with uh, her parents, sometimes uh, her sister, uh, people surrounding her, but at the same time also had such a sense of hope about the world. Through the opera, we try to make it clear her growing sense of self as a, as a writer and as somebody who would tell the stories that people will know what happened. Um, and th that is such an extraordinarily uh, strong responsibility to tackle that kind of writing. After all those years of work, getting the rights and putting the project together, they watched the project come to life during intensive weeks of rehearsal. For me to see how things are coming together, there are uh, there's, for example, one particularly difficult and I think uh, uh, powerful scene uh, toward the end of the first act uh, where the, the families, uh, the annex members, are making a celebration of sorts of Hanukkah. And uh, parallel to them, the chorus, which is what signifies here the prisoners the people through whom we see the outside being brought in. They, too, are attempting to celebrate their own Hanukkah. And then there is also, at the same time, a group of drunk, uh, vulgar. It's really been extraordinarily moving and uh, uh, very, very special to see all of these, these three elements coming to life, uh, taking off from the written page and becoming reality. You know, this is the way in which uh, uh, Charles Conduct brought to life the idea of bringing the outside into 
uh, the inside of the annex because there would have been a variety of ways. And uh, all I knew when we first talked is that I wanted these two parallel realities to uh, in some way uh, intertwine and uh, be, be shown. And I didn't know whether it would be uh, through uh, projections, through uh, flashbacks and flash forwards and flash outsides or whatever. And I think the way of... Uh, but one other thing that I knew was that I really wanted to have a strong presence of a chorus. Uh, the chorus here does an, a number of things, but their primary goal is really that of uh, portraying in different ways the prisoners. Yes, yeah. And they have right at the start of the opera, they have a, uh, um, a piece that I'm calling the prisoner's chorus where they are saying, we ask why? Are we different? And this is, in a way, the key question. Anne Sloven says one valuable aspect to being part of a world premiere is the influence the cast can have on the production. And it really is the most incredible process. Um, We have a lot of input, actually, into how the roles are played and how the music sounds. We're the first people to get to sing it. And the composer has very strong ideas, obviously, but um, we get to inform a lot of how this opera is shaped um, for the future, which is very exciting. And now we are staging it, so we finally get to put it up on its feet, attempt to memorize it. And um, I found that that has been really rewarding um, it's it's a challenging process, and it's a lot of hard work, but it really comes alive. Now, this is hardly the first work about the Holocaust or about Anne Frank. But the people who brought the opera to life say that it is important to reinterpret and reimagine the diary for new audiences and in new generations. Each of them has their own reasons. Perhaps it is that sense that it is up to us, the living to make sure that the memory is kept alive. In the sense that, yes, people are gradually passing away. There are fewer and fewer remaining Holocaust survivors. And so it is up to us. And yes, it is extraordinarily uh, unbelievable and frightening First of all, that uh, there seems to be a resurgence of anti-Semitism in various forms, in various places. Uh, Who would have thought that today this would be happening in 2023? I, I hear about people who, uh, you know, swaths of uh, population of younger people who really don't know what the Holocaust was, have just a very vague understanding of it, if at all, um, or who think that the whole thing was vastly exaggerated. My mother, by the way, is still alive. Oh, that's great. She's, yeah. She's 97. 
and there aren't too many left, and there aren't too many eyewitnesses. And because of that, it's even more important to, to, to keep this memory alive. Yeah. Why? Why? Well, I would say, you know, there have been numerous cases of genocides in the past hundred years. But the scope of this genocide in which 12 billion people were murdered, and that's a reason to keep reminding people what can happen if a government adopts a policy of either racism or anti-Semitism or xenophobia against a particular group of people. Something that's been interesting about this process, and I I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is how much fun we're having, actually. Um, We laugh a lot in rehearsals. Um, A lot of times the characters are laughing. There's a lot of Jewish joy built into this opera, even though the circumstances are such that it is a really tragic and hopeless kind of story. Um, And I think it's really important to focus on, on Jewish joy, as well as our traumatic history and our traumatic present. There's still things going on. Um, But for example, you know, Jews are really famous for comedy. We're funny. (laughs) Um, Jews are funny. And uh, and we're famous for music. We have klezmer. We have cantorial music. There is so much spirituality about Judaism and so much sort of um, living, breathing, hopefulness about it um, that I think can get lost. So something that is important to me as a Jewish artist is to present not only the times when we suffered, but also the times that are really joyful and the times that we celebrate because that's we we celebrate a lot. We have a lot of holidays. We have a lot of um, drinking holidays. <laughs> um, so I, I think I think Jewish culture has the potential to be incredibly joyful. And I think we do it a disservice if we only focus on the times when Jews were suffering. If we only look at um, the past when horrific things were happening and we don't connect it to where we are now, then I think we miss a big part of, of what makes Judaism special. The fact that a whole new opera about Anne Frank can happen in 2023, one that includes Jewish joy and Jewish suffering, and one that takes up themes from more than half a century ago and interprets them in a unique way, shows that this part of history is not receding into the past. It's part of us. WFIU's Violet Perrin. Let's take a quick break, and maybe we can think about what this show means to you. This is local public media. I mean that in a couple ways. It's made locally, handcrafted in the studios of WFIU Bloomington, and we also use local ingredients. Nate Powell may be a nationally known artist, but he's also a local, as are Joyce Jeffries from the episode Joyce Jeffries and the Cutters, Sam Schof from Becoming a Participant in the Landscape, so many more. So much of our media these days is national. 
You can't get an in-depth understanding of your own community that way. We need to keep supporting local news, like what's produced just down the hall in our newsroom, and we also need media that pays attention to local culture, what's going on in Bloomington, Columbus, Paoli, or across the state and region. That's what we're doing here on Interstates, and that's what I hope you will support right now. Call 1-800-662-3311 or go to wfiu.org slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to Interstates from WFIU Public Media for Southern Indiana. Next up, Adrian Pontecorvo talks with Kyle Fulford about the new album from Witness Protection. Witness Protection is a project based in Bloomington, Indiana, and fronted by local artist Kyle Fulford. In 2022, the group gave us the album College Ruled, and they're already back with more. On March 31st, Witness Protection returns with new release, Second Thoughts. I'm here with Kyle now to talk about what we can look forward to next. Kyle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Adrian. Can you give us an overview of the new album? Second Thoughts is a conceptual rock album designed to be listened to as a program. The seven tracks each represent a specific day in the life of the protagonist. Musically, it's just sort of all over the place. I mean, there's progressive metal, there's ukulele folk pop, synth pop, but there's also more conventional, just sort of pop rock songs, prog influences. Prog influences. We should probably clarify first for the listeners what prog means. Let's do it. Okay. So prog is short for progressive rock, which is a sort of retrograde term uh, that sort of describes a style of music that came about in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and is associated with acts such as Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Genesis, Yes, King Crimson. And that's sort of the pool of musical legacy that I'm I'm pulling from. I would love to talk more about how this fits into that witness protection body of work. In late 2019, I was still an undergraduate at Indiana University, and there was a, a student songwriting contest. And then in February of 2020, I was notified that I was one of the three finalists. Uh, That was a very exciting time for me until like the next week when the world literally shut down. That project and the ability to record the song were all put on hold. I started to flesh out some other songs that I had written and decided to record them at home. After not much time, maybe a few weeks, a month, I had written a body of work that I was pretty happy with. And that is what became that first Witness Protection album. Second Thoughts is sort of the sequel to that. I did finally have the opportunity to record at uh, Russian Recording, and that was a a life-affirming experience working with Mike Bradavsky and and Damien at the studio. I tend to perform most of the parts myself. The experience at Russian Recording was much more collaborative. I'd love to hear also a little bit about the, um, the personnel for Second Thoughts specifically. With Second Thoughts, which is in a lot of odd meter, uh, has a lot of polyrhythm and a lot of really complex uh, tempo changes, I knew that I would need someone else to perform the parts. At that point, I had also uh, started translating the lyrics to the album to Italian. 
that was a sort of nod or an homage to my love of Italian progressive rock music from the early 1970s. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have like a real Italian scenester play drums on the record? And that's how I found Cesare. He would send me a take, and every time the first take was absolutely perfect. Another one of the songs is a duet between two characters on the album, and I knew that I needed a vocalist who could perform the vocals in English and Italian as well. I was able to find Lola Vicentini, who did perform the duet in both English and Italian on the song The Shadow of Time. I was able to convince a couple of my friends and colleagues to perform on the album. Taigo Meher is an Irish finger pianist, accordionist, uh, in One for the Foxes. He's a consummate professional. So he's able to make his own signature mark on the song, and I think do it again. It just wouldn't be the same without Tyke's performance. Happy Endings, the first song on the album. It's a bit of a pocket symphony. My friend Kurt, uh, Kurt Bear, performs also in the local group Marixando. I sent him the demo of the song, and I was like, hey, do you think you could improv over this? Because I want to have this sort of noisy, vampy freak-out section in the middle of the song. He uh, came into Airtime Studios north of Bloomington, and David Weber, the engineer and mixer master for the album, uh, hung up a microphone, and we just let Kurt run with it and he did his thing and Kurt is biting on the reed and squonking and honking the horn. It was really fun. The album will be released simultaneously in English and Italian, the album title uh, being uh, Ripensamenti to convey the meaning idiomatically in a, a language that is not my own. I reached out to another graduate student here at IU, Leonardo Cabrini, and uh, sent him the lyrics. You never really have that opportunity as a language learner to explore the sort of creative power of language. You don't really get the opportunity to play with the language, and that's what this was. I do want to make sure that we get kind of who you are as a, a Bloomingtonian, because I think you occupy a very unique sort of space. What makes my positionality unique and unusual uh, as a PhD student in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology is that I'm a townie. I'm, I'm, I'm from Bloomington, Indiana. I went to, to school here. And as I started to hone my craft, not only as a songwriter and as a guitar player, but as an engineer, as a sonic artist, I guess you would say, it sort of occurred to me that the things I was reading about in school and the sort of very highly theoretical ways in which we think about um, how music is mediated 
but also what purposes live performance and music serves more generally, culturally. It sort of hit me that it was all part of the same body of work, that the work that I'm doing uh, in witness protection and my scholarly work as a PhD student, those lines started to become more and more increasingly blurred. The Department of French and Italian at Indiana University has a graduate student conference on March 31st. The album will be released simultaneously with the conference presentation. The way I'm sort of situating the work, uh, that is Second Thoughts, is within a larger discussion of what progressive rock means to the larger sort of not only body of rock music generally, but also popular music. It's very much a research creation project. I've been talking with Kyle Fulford of Witness Protection, also a PhD student at Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology. New Witness Protection album Second Thoughts comes out in both English and Italian on March 31st. For WFIU, I'm Adrian Pontecorvo. You can find more information on our website, WFIU.org. We'll be right back. As you consider making a pledge in support of Interstates and all the other great programming you get through WFIU, a couple more words on what we do for you. One thing I try to do on Interstates is what you might call better living through art. There are a lot of ways you can make your life better. Art is one of them. Something I've learned since I started this show is that making art isn't just about the creation. So many people I've talked with said the process was the most important thing to them. It brings a kind of calm and energy at the same time. I hope Interstates, and public media in general, does that for you. If so, now's your chance to step up and support us. Call 800-662-3311 or go to wfiu.org slash donate. And thanks. Interstates, Alex Chambers. For this special Pledge Drive edition of Interstates, I'm going to end with a musical mystery we ran into here at the station last year. You'll hear from a couple of my colleagues, voices you know and love if you're a regular radio listener, and you'll learn a little bit more about what it's like to work at this particular station. Here we go. We've been hearing music here at the WFIU offices, and we don't fully understand how it's getting here. You'd think we would control all the music. We're the radio station. But ever since we've come back to the office, there's been this other music. Like a radio, but one we can't turn off. Like a radio, but from on high. Maybe more like the voice of God. These bells have been the soundtrack to our workday. And while it's nice to be important enough to have a soundtrack, like most kinds of fame and fortune, it does come with some complications. Something that I think happens because you're hearing it in the background, it's part of your everyday existence, but you're not really trying, you're trying not to listen to it, but then... This is my colleague, host of Earth Eats, Kate Young. You start kind of picking up a melody. Is that that? Is it this? Is it that? You know, and then that's what makes it so distracting, is because the arrangements for the carillon are so different than they would be on 
guitar or something that you're just struggling to figure out what it is that you're hearing and that takes your mind away from your work. And another thing is just if I can go all acoustic and music theory nerdy on you. Mark Chilla, host of Afterglow and Morning Edition in Bloomington. It has to do with the bells themselves because bells don't produce the same kind of tone as like a piano or a guitar would. There's a, you hear a lot of overtones with a bell and a lot of those overtones ring very strongly. So when you hear a note, you're hearing a lot of overtones with that note. So the note itself is not always clear what pitch it is which can get really confusing because you're trying to follow you're trying to follow this melody but you're hearing all these ringing <laughs> overtones over it and you're like wait where is the melody exactly and then all of a sudden you have you're you're not working anymore you are <laughs> focusing on the acoustics of bells uh, in the middle of your work day which you know is a nice distraction sometimes so i said there was a bit of a mystery here it's not about where the bells are coming from there's a tower about 350 feet from our windows. It's the Wells Metz Carillon. It was moved here from across campus in 2019 and unveiled at the beginning of 2020. That's what we do know. What we don't know is who's playing it or how it's played. How do they keep it going for hours and hours every weekday afternoon? We developed some theories. One that I thought up until today was that it was all pre-recorded or or like kind of like a player piano kind of thing where uh you know there was some sort of uh pre-programmed music that was going through the carillon cuz we we were hearing the same songs over and over and over again each and every day so i thought maybe it's not a real live person maybe it's kind of like a player piano but it's a player carillon instead that's what I thought, too. I mean, that's honestly, I think that's what I still think. Mm-hmm. I'm, my vote is still that it's a player piano, and there's a set number of songs, and they're, they're programmed. That's what I think. Kate had a little more faith in musical humanity. I think that it's a real person, and I think they're playing live. But what I don't know is, are they in the structure of the carillon with some mallets or something, you know, which is what I want to think, but I don't I don't actually believe that. I think that they're somewhere else. I think like I think they're in some room in Jacobs and they're playing. That's uh the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music, just across campus. But I think that they're students and that they're practicing. And I think that because I often hear the same song more than once in a session. And it feels like they're kind of working on it. And I also hear, like we were just listening to America the Beautiful, and we heard quite a bit of hesitation between notes at times where they're, you know, they're they're practicing. It's not pre-programmed. Okay, but so here's why I don't think it's someone practicing. Unless it's just one person practicing Mm -hmm. all the time, I feel like there would be more repertoire is there like a book? Is there a when you go inside the structure of the carillon and sit at the keyboard or grab the mallets or grab the ropes or what? However you play it, is there like a certain like is there a certain set of of songs that you can only play, which includes "Under the Boardwalk" and "Summertime" and "Here Comes the Sun" and "Vincent" by Don McLean and all the other songs that we've heard hundreds and hundreds of times it seems at this point. 
Another colleague of ours heard something even more radio-worthy. Violet says she heard some Britney Spears songs. It's a pretty wide range. Yeah, it's a pretty wide range, which put a hole in my pre-programmed theory. And there were still more questions. I don't quite know how a carillon works. Is it like a keyboard that you play? Or is, is someone with mallets? Are there Are they... Is it like kind of like a belfry where they're pulling on big ropes to play bells or something like that? I don't actually know. I wish I did know, especially because the carillon has become such an, an important or at least uh, <laughs> integral part of my life each and every day as I, as I am in the office. I have so many questions about it, and I really want to learn more about who programs it, who's playing it, how is it played, where is it played? This, these, are all, these are all really good questions. Yep. All right. Well, it's a mystery. I am going to try to dig into it and uh, get you some answers. Please. Dig into it, I did. The dark corners of the internet have a lot to say about carillons. Here's what I was able to find out. But let's, uh, let's just keep this between us. Carillons evolved from single-belled instruments. Guess those would just be called bells. They evolved from bells. In the Middle Ages, a bell on a tower told the time of day, and it could also send messages like fire, or we're being attacked, or there is a plague upon us. Everyone stay inside and wait for Zoom meetings to be invented. The time of day thing has continued. If you live near a big church or a university, you might be used to hearing the bells ring out the hour. At first, it was just that. They'd ring once for one o'clock, twice for two, and you know, so on. But pretty early on, people realized a heads up would be nice, so you'd know to start counting. So they established what's called the four strike, and they added more bells so that four strike could be a melody. Now we get four strikes every quarter hour, building up to four four strikes on the hour, and then the count. This was all happening in a very particular part of the world. In the 16th century, the Netherlands and Belgium were like Silicon Valley in the late 1990s. Money was flowing in, and everyone wanted a carillon bigger than the next towns. And then the tables turned. After the French Revolution, there was a copper shortage, and the sound of the bells was no longer their most appealing quality. People dismantled carillons all over the place. And then grandfather clocks and pocket watches undercut carillons' monopoly on the time. At this point, the mid-19th century, things weren't looking so good for the blue whale of musical instruments. But things changed again in the 1880s, because by then, bellmakers had developed ways to tune the bells more precisely, and that made people want to have carillon concerts. The first was in 1892, and it put the instrument on the map as a soloist rather than just background sound. Although, I don't know, that distinction still seems a little fuzzy. I often like to think of it that the carillon is part of the soundscape of a city. So here at the Mets, we're part of IU soundscape, along with the sirens and the birds and people walking around outside. And that's a really unique honor, I think, that carillon performers have. The carillon is a very public instrument. If you're in the vicinity and it's playing, you're going to hear it. At the same time, carillon performers are pretty anonymous. It took me some work to find one. I had to try multiple search terms. But I did eventually track down the person I needed, Lindley Wang. I'm the current Carillon Associate Instructor and also University Carillonist here at Indiana University, and I have the joy of ringing the Mets Carillon. We met up at the base of the Carillon. 
And before anything else, I had to get some answers to Kate and Mark. I'm very curious. Well, here you go. Is there a person inside always, or is it just is it like a player piano kind of thing where it's somehow programmed? Usually it's going to be a person, but we also have an automatic mechanism. When it's a real person, are they actually in the carillon, or is it somehow controlled remotely? You have to be up there. Everything is mechanical. Is it a keyboard? Is it mallets? Are you pulling ropes? We actually sit at a playing console that has both a manual keyboard for your hands and also a pedal compass. Who's generally playing? Is it students? Is it always you? Not always me. I do have minions, and they're the students of the IU Carillon Studio. For a long time, we're hearing things like Under the Boardwalk, Here Comes the Sun, Don McLean's Vincent, Mm -hmm. as well as seasonally-themed things. But I would think if it was students, they would be playing a variety of, I mean, a wider variety, and there wouldn't be quite as much repetition. So you're probably hearing the same student come back and again at the same time practicing their set of repertoire, which is why you hear repeated music. Every student has, you know, their own little niche of music that they tend to like best. Who decides what gets played? Well, at first I assign some music just so that they can nail down the technique, but after that, the world is your oyster. Gotcha. I'm amazed to hear that they're actually up in the tower. Yeah. They are actually up in the tower. Yeah. It's a pretty cool space, actually. I got to go up there. She took me up. And uh, the the console looks like a piano and an organ got together and had Pinocchio as a baby. <laughs> I have to say that it does make me feel better. Yeah. It makes me feel better knowing that someone, a human being who's interested in Carillon, is learning to play this somewhat rare instrument or yeah. something, you know, and that, that that's who's choosing the music and they're choosing it for their own exploration. But also for our enjoyment as well, you know, because it's such a public instrument. So there's something nice <laughs> about that rather than just like, oh, we'll just put on something in the background. Let's press play on a on an automated thing or, you know, so there's something nice about that. Yeah, yeah it's kind of like radio, <laughs> except... With the radio, you can turn it off and on yes. at your <laughs> at your <will>. leisure. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And that, of course, is the crux of the situation. That was the thing I had really called Lindley to talk about, and it was also the thing that I was most nervous about asking. So I, uh, I put it off, signed up for the tour instead. I love doing tours. I love being bringing people up into the tower. There's a door at the base of the carillon. Lindley unlocked it and led me up a flight of stairs. Here we go. Just a little bit more. Before I let you in, I'm going to have you look up because you can actually see our bells. If you step carefully over here so Uh you don't go down our steps, you'll see our baby bells are actually right above the playing cabin. And if you look straight up, you'll actually see one of our largest bells. Wow. All right, and then I'll let you into our playing cabin. Okay. Come on in. We were in a small climate-controlled room with a bench and a playing console. Instead of keys, there were two rows of what looked like the ends of broomsticks. You play them by pushing down with your fists. There are also pedals for your feet. Each of the broomsticks and pedals uses metal rods and levers to connect to a clapper way up in the bell. So you press down on the broomstick, it's actually called a baton, and that makes the clapper hit the bell. Remember how Mark said bells have a lot of overtones? 
They ring a main note, but lots of other notes come floating through too. That also explains why a lot of the music sounds just a little off. It's not just that it's weird to hear a Britney Spears song from a bell tower. It's also about those overtones. For classically trained musicians, they often are very distracted sometimes by the music of the carillon, like confused. And it's because the carillon has a very strong minor third overtone, whereas in Western classical music tradition, it's usually major third overtone. So for example, if I play something major sounding, it almost feels like you've bitten into a lemon. It's got a little bit of a twinge, but if I play a minor third, it feels very comfortable. Like you could slide right into the water and stay there for a little bit. It feels really nice. Lindley played some music for me. I'm gonna play you a sample and I want you to pay attention to all the extra noise. I was recording in the playing cabin so you hear all the mechanics. The carillon's made to be listened to outside. Also, you won't be able to hear this, but Lindley was getting a workout. It's so physical. (laughs) It is definitely very physical. And it's because you're moving literally tons of heavy metal. It is not, you know, it's not like a little violin we're playing up here. And it's like, it's a really big instrument. Yeah, it's got 65 bells. Four of those were added in the renovation, and they have quotes from famous women poets inscribed on them. The biggest bell is six feet wide, over six tons. And just to be clear, those batons and pedals move clappers that hit the bells. The bells themselves are stationary. Okay, so I'd gotten a sense of the situation, but I still hadn't gotten an answer to the crucial question. It had been almost an hour. If I was going to do it, now was the time. Um, like, it's, it can be a little challenging. <laughs> <laughs> The listening or the playing? <laughs> the, the listening. I mean, not when I'm like this, like this was lovely. And, um, and you know, it would have been nice to hear it outside where it was like the bells were more clear and stuff. But, you know, like when you're, when you're working, you know, do you, do you like listen to music when you're working? I don't, but I know my brother is probably Spotify's best customer, uh-huh. so he listens a lot. Right. And I know right. people have differing opinions on listening to music while they work, and it is tricky. I know what you're kind of getting at. Yeah, right. It's like, it, how do we balance, you know, making music versus possibly making noise? Uh, and it's a really tricky question. All carillons navigate this question differently. Here at IU, since the tower is so new and we started during COVID, I think we were given a lot of freedom in terms of ringing the bells. No one was really on campus. We also wanted to raise awareness, so more was better at the beginning. Lindley loves the Caroline. She even wrote a children's book about all the bells on campus. It's about a squirrel looking for the Wells Mets Caroline. It's called Is This My Home? Clearly, Lindley wants the rest of us to love the Caroline too. And she recognizes that too much of a good thing is no longer a good thing. 
I think as the carillon enters into a new stage of life where people know more about it and we want the carillon to continue to be a thing of joy for the campus, I think the next step is probably instilling weekly or daily ring times where the carillon only rings for a couple of hours and most of the practice is being done elsewhere. Lindley left Indiana University the week after we talked. I don't think it had to do with me. She said something about finishing grad school. Anyway, since then, the carillon's been much quieter. Her students must be taking a break, too. I imagine they'll start playing again once the new semester starts. I'm feeling more okay with that. Lindley's enthusiasm rubbed off a bit. And look, I understand. Even if your job doesn't involve adjusting sound all day, like ours do in the radio station, you also might not want to listen to music as you work. That's legit. But I don't know, it was hard staying home for a year and a half. It's kind of nice to know there's a real person up there, ringing out the bells to say, hey, the pandemic's still on, but you can come outside. Be around other people again. it for today's show. And I just want to say, you are still listening, so this must matter to you. As you know, WFIU is made possible through the contributions of listeners like you. And look, we both know it's not going to go away tomorrow if you don't contribute. It's part of why public media is so important. It's free for everyone, whether they can afford to pay for it or not. Keeping it free for everyone depends on the listeners who are able to give, whether it's $10 or $20 a month, even more. If you haven't supported us yet, or you feel like now is a good time to increase your support, you can do it by calling 800-662-3311 or going to wfiu.org slash donate. And while you're at it, give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Jack Linder, Yanni Sanchez-Lopez, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Anne Sloven, Shulamit Ron, Arthur Fagan, Kyle Fulford, and Adrian Pontecorvo. All right, time for some sound sound. There was onions sizzling in butter. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>